Let's get into the book here, right? What do y'all think of this, right? This is the this is the kind of Bible we need to be bringing to church. A big one, big Bible, big faith, right? None of this smartphone, tiny stuff. You need a Bible that can break the pulpit. Big books. So, <laughs> oh, uh, actually, I'm I'm sorry, great. Um, Kathy actually um, uh, is is not here today. We're giving her a break, um, and so we we don't have the elementary children's age today. Thank you for making sure I said something. Uh, and actually, let me tell you this, uh, parents. Um, uh, we have not had any volunteers offer to help during the ten o'clock hour to help Kathy. We've been announcing it for a couple months. So here's what I told Kathy last week. I said, "Hey, guess what? Until someone does, you'll just do it the first. Let's just do it the first and third of the month because Kathy needs to be in here some. And so, what a great opportunity that if someone wants to volunteer for like the second or the fourth of each month, this could be an opportunity for you to do that." And so I told her and said, until that happens, let's just, let's just try the first uh, and third of the month that we have the 10 a.m. elementary age, you know. Does everybody understand that, right? So um, Kathy was reluctant to do that, but I brought out my big Bible, and then she was like, sure, whatever you say, Nick. So, all right, take your Bible, go over to Zechariah. We're in Zechariah. Now, you might be wondering, why are you using such a large book? First off, I uh, talked about getting a big book, and Weber, uh, Weber actually had brought this by, this family Bible that they had, a uh, big book. And I've been thinking, there's got to be a time when I can use this big book, and uh, i got to wait for the right time. By the way, this is a King James Version, great version. This is the version that I first started reading, uh, so this is from King James But if you have any literal translation, it's going to flow very nicely. We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 5. And so today, there's a vision that we see here. And this vision is big. And this vision is a big scroll. And on that big scroll has God's word. And so I thought, big scroll, big word. Guess what? It's time for the big Jesus book, right? And so that's why you got the big book, right? So do this. Can we stand in reverence to the reading of God's word today? We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 5. We're going to be going uh, from Zechariah chapter 5 and verse 1. And we're going to stop. We actually we're going to go through the rest of the chapter, but we're going to stop a little bit short today. God's kind of showed me some things. So we're going to stop here uh, in verse 5, some thoughts that that um, as I was doing my final review this morning. Then I turned and lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll or scroll. I'm reading from the King James Version, verse 2. And he said to me, what seest thou? And I answered, a flying roll or scroll. The length thereof is 20 cubits and the breadth thereof 10 cubits. Then he said unto me, this is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that stealeth shall be cut off as on this, on this side, according to it. And everyone that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side, according to it. I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and into the house of him who sweareth falsely by my name. And it shall remain in the midst of his house and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. Would you pray with me? 
Thank you for this vision, this sixth vision that the Lord gives Zechariah for the people, for himself, for the people. They're building this second temple. A lot of things are going on. But what we can't forget in the midst of it is the importance of God's word. We see this here. What a grace. What a near grace for them. Let us capture the what was intended for the original recipients. And let us make that jump to today. How we can love you, serve you, glorify you. How we can take this text and know what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. How we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let us walk in it. Let us point us to the good news of Jesus and his life, death, burial, resurrection. And God's people said, amen. Thank you. So I've been looking for the right opportunity to use this big book that was so generously given to me. And uh, today I thought, what a great opportunity. Let me make a little explanation about this scroll that you see here. In your NASB or ESV Bible, or your, maybe if you're using a New Living Translation, it would probably say scroll instead of roll. Uh, back in ancient times, that's actually how they wrote. They would write on a scroll. It would roll up. Now, it's interesting when you look in this text, this scroll, it talks about the cubits. The cubit, it says 20 cubits and the breadth thereof 10 cubits, which would roughly be about 15 feet by 30 feet. 15 feet by 30 feet. That's a pretty big Bible. I wish I could find one that big. Wouldn't that be awesome? I even know if I could physically lift that and drop it down in here. So we're talking about a massive scroll in this vision. And on this scroll is actually, we're going to discover in a little bit, is written the law of Moses. At, at least at a bare minimum, I would say the Ten Commandments are there. And the warnings of not obeying God's moral law and his civil law and ceremonial law for Israel. The warnings of Deuteronomy 28. I think more properly, that scroll probably had all that. The entire law of Moses, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the civil law, the, and the covenant and the cursings and blessings, the ceremonial law. What you see uh, in Deuteronomy, what you see in Exodus chapter 20 through the end. That, that would be my assumption by what I'm reading in the text. So what we see here is a giant flying scroll with the law of Moses reminding the people, reminding the people about the moral law. In this text, we have the third and eighth of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number three and commandment number eight mentioned in this vision. We also have the mention of what would be really, we would consider Deuteronomy 28, the warnings that if you didn't obey. So I thought today, man, a giant scroll this is the day to use this big King James Bible that I can plop down here and let everybody see. Now, we'll say this. Remember, in the context of what's happening at this time, if you have a guest here, basically, they're rebuilding the second temple. They've returned from Babylonian captivity. They're in the midst of political pressure. They're trying to do what God has called them to do to build that second temple And what's important, there's a grace. There's a grace. All eight visions I've kind of titled the mercy and grace of God, the near and far mercy of God's grace. And right here, there is a near grace going on in chapter 5, verse 1 through 4 in this vision. This near grace, I would say, is this. They are rebuilding the temple, the physical temple. And in the midst of that, they cannot forget to build the word of God into their lives. They can't forget it. 
And I want you to notice in the text, this flying scroll, look at it. And I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what seest thou? And I answered, I see a flying roll, a scroll, the length thereof, 20 cubits, the breadth thereof, 10 cubits, huge, 15 by 30. Giant. Why would it be so giant? So that everybody could read it. And not only that, look, then he said to me, this is the curse that goeth forth over the whole earth. Now, if you're looking in your NASB, ESV, NLT, it actually doesn't say whole earth. It says whole land, referring more to the land of Israel. I think the translation of that word earth by the King James translators is not a good translation. I actually think it should say land instead of earth here, although the Hebrew word used here can be translated earth or or land. But just so you know, by the way, everybody kind of has these apps and stuff that, that, that you can look up Bible words. And do you ever notice when you look up Bible words, there seems to be many definitions of that Bible word? Is everybody kind of catching my drift here? Just And what I'll see sometimes people do is they'll take that and they'll go, oh, this word can mean, like they'll decide that word can mean any one of those ten definitions. And I will go, no, that's not how it works. You, the, the definition has a lot to do with the context, right? So when you see the Hebrew word used here, it, it can denote the world or land, and the context of Ezekiel's vision is the people of Israel, specifically the land. And it even talks about the curses on this scroll, which would refer to Deuteronomy 28, which would be the curses for the land of Israel. Okay, So that's why I would say that's a better translation. Now, not to get into the weeds on that for you, but just to let you know. But here's the, the beauty of it. Here's this scroll, huge and big. It's pointing at the original recipients who get this vision are understanding this is a flying, this is big. It's flying around the whole land. It's big enough for everybody that everybody's supposed to see it. Not that, remember, this is a vision. Not everybody got to see this, but there's a truth being promoted. Everybody in Israel, all everybody that's returned from captivity, rebuilding this temple, reestablishing their society. Everybody is meant to immerse themselves in the law of Moses, which was the word of God for them at that moment. Everyone is meant to obey God's commands. And if we don't, what happened to us in the past will happen again. Because don't we all kind of know, we all have short memories, don't we? You know what I love about dogs, okay? Whatever you do to a dog, they almost forget just like a couple minutes later. They seem to have such short memories. I'm telling you, you could kick your dog like it's a football, right? And that dog will probably, not that you would do that, okay? Well, some of us may, right? Depending on how the dog's acting, okay? But that dog's just going to come back and love you. Now, you do that to a cat, that cat will remember what you did, right? And that cat will figure out some devious way to repay that tenfold when you least expect it. But the children of Israel have a short memory, And so remember, they had come from captivity as a result of their sin and disobeying the law of Moses. And they have now come back. And the easy thing to do, because we all have short memories, is that you would return back to that. So this vision is a grace for them in their life. It's a reminder for them. What a blessing that God would give them a reminder. This simple little vision, although, yes, it seems weird, unless it seems seems, is strange, God comes in and says, I want to remind you. Look in verse 3. This is the curse that goeth forth over the whole earth. For everyone that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side. Meaning, 
in the, in the past, even the future, if you break this commandment of stealing, the eighth commandment, you'll be cut off. That's, this was a commandment that they struggled with. We're going to talk more about that. Everyone that sweareth, this is the third command that falls in line with thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, shall be cut off as on its side according to it. This, they're mentioning things that they'd struggled with in the past that they needed a reminder in the current. What a grace that is. So I have kind of two big points uh, that I want to make today, and I've kind of talked about it already a little bit, but we'll dive a little bit further. But my first point is this. There is the near grace in this text, the near grace that God's word is getting is a big reminder for their lives. There is the near grace that God's word is giving them a big reminder for their lives. Big scroll all over the land in this vision, meant for everybody to see a reminder of particularly what commandment breaking they have struggled with in the past. So the third commandment and the eighth commandment, they had some struggles with it in the past, and it was a unique struggle for them even in the future. We're going to talk about that here more in a little bit. But what a grace that God would do that. By the way, I will tell you this. This is why you need to be in discipling relationships so that every discipling relationship, every discipling community, there ought to be an open Bible somewhere in that discussion. This is why we need the church body together. That's why we need to study with each other. This is why we need a daily discipline in God's word. Why? Because we all have dog memories. That's the deal. If you had cat memories, you'd probably remember everything. But there is this reminder every day. And we all know it. Spend some time in God's word for a season and you know what it's like to enjoy the breath of God through your soul each day. And then stop doing that and watch how your soul responds to life. We have short memories. We need the reminder. This is why even in our lives, we need all sorts of reminders. We need reminders from the church body. Last week, not one person, I was so offended too, not one person told me last week, good sermon, right? Don't do it this week now, right? I know, I know you coached you. Well, I'm not looking for that, That's a, but, but I'm just messing around with you. No one said good sermon. Wasn't looking for it anyways. But you know what? I did have some people. I had, I was trying to count it up. It was either four or five people last week said, during that edified time, there were some things said that really helped my soul. Man, I really needed to hear that from God's people. What was that? That was the grace of a reminder. It's one person particularly said, you know, there was a couple people that what they said, it wasn't new information I didn't already know. It's just information that I had not reminded myself about. Here's what I love about this text. He's having this vision. They're building. I mean, if you read Ezra, you discover that they did finish this project later on. Through the Zerubbabel and through Joshua, I mean, like, things happen. They get this thing built. But in the midst of them building something physical, they can't forget to build their soul on the Word of God. And so God, in His graciousness, comes in in vision number six and says, Hey, 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 Zechariah, I got a vision. Big scroll. Ten Commandments, Law of Moses, the warnings that you had disobeyed in the past. You, the people, they need to be reminded of God's word. What a blessing. 
You know how blessed you are that you get to even come today and be at Collierville? What's the name of our church? Bible church, right? Like we're a Bible church. We get to open up the Bible. We get to talk about the Bible. We get to even look at a big Bible, right? The King James. Now do this. I didn't intend to go this far in where I'm about to go, but I think it's very important because it's an essential part of what you see in the text overall. Hold your place in Zechariah and turn over to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This is why I really plan today to get to vision 6 and 7. But this morning, just I, I planned on just trying, just kind of reading past this, but... I kind of like the, there was this thought that came from the Lord um, that this, I mean, there was no audible voice. It was this, the Lord was, it was this idea that would not shake in my mind. I pray it's from the Lord. It would not, it was not come off my mind this morning. I was just going to quickly read Exodus 20, just so you can kind of remember God's Ten Commandments. And then this idea the Lord kept giving me, it was like, hey, you know, Sometimes people don't even look at God's Ten Commandments as moral commands. And so maybe you should just talk about them a little bit as you go through this text. Because I want you to understand, in the text of chapter 5, the scroll that's flying around, on each side of it was no less than commandment 3 and 8. Just so you understand, is God's Ten Commandments something we pick from? Or if you have commandment 3 on one side and 8 on one side for sure mentioned in the text... Wouldn't you suppose that that's meaning all the Ten Commandments, right? And if you're given the idea of the curses that, that would happen from Deuteronomy, wouldn't that denote there's probably more of like the whole law of Moses? But no less, we don't have time to read all the way from Exodus 20 through 31, but no less in this text it points out for Israel, Commandment 3 and 8 were unique struggles for them. So if you have a chain that there's 10 links in it, and that's the 10 commandments, and you're wondering what link, you got commandment 1 to commandment 10, and they're each a link in a chain, and you're wondering what parts of the chain that break off for Israel, it seems real easy for this particular generation. It would probably be commandment 3 and 8. But let's do this. I want to look at all the commands and talk a little bit about them, but even maybe talk a little bit more about commandment 3 and 8 if it's all possible. So hold your place there. And look in Exodus chapter 20. So in his vision, no less, we know for sure that there would be the Ten Commandments is what Ezekiel saw in this big flying scroll. Big commandments. This is the Ten Commandments. This is God's uh, moral commands for Israel. A lot of people would kind of look at this and go, we got chapter 20, the moral commands of God. We've got chapter 21 through 24, which would be the civil laws uh, for Israel, which God's the civil laws for Israel. Actually, you find its genesis in the moral commands of God. Like how they were to civilly respond to each other is predicated on these big ten moral commands. Their justice system is based on the moral commands. Their ceremonial system is based on the first four commands of how you worship God. So everything descends from the moral commands. Now, what's interesting. We look at chapter 20 in the context of what's happened on. 
that the Lord's giving. The Lord is speaking this to them himself. Now, if you read this further, after you get past the Ten Commandments, the people are kind of like, that was frightening. And uh, Moses, you take care of this from now on. Like, we would surely love a mediator. That was frightening what we just heard. What's interesting is Moses' response is, hey, don't fear the Lord. Oh, but what? But fear the Lord, right? I kind of love that. People say, we shouldn't fear the Lord. And I would go, no, you should fear the Lord, but not fear the Lord, right? Kind of talking out two sides of my mouth. But you should fear the Lord's holiness and wrath. But in Christ, the wrath of God is not what's coming on you. But in Christ, you should fear his discipline for your life. There's a healthy type of fear and there's a wrong type of fear. But that's besides my point. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. I just want to walk through the Ten Commandments, these moral commands that have not been negated. They are still here. If you are in Christ, these are, these are obedience things that God wants you to obey. You do not obey these in a way that earns your own righteousness. And you'll find that you, especially even in the scriptures, bears out that as much as you try to keep this, you're going to fall short and that's going to let you know your need for a Savior But no less, this is God's call for God's people, even still today. None of these Ten Commandments are mentioned in the New Testament. Although, I don't separate out the the commandments from each other. Is everything okay? Okay. Um, uh, they, 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 They don't separate from each other, okay? There's one commandment that's not mentioned in the New Testament. It's the Sabbath one. But I actually would think, I actually think that Sabbath, um is a creation command. We find that all the way at creation. There's a Sabbath rhythm for everybody's life that I think is essential. Let's look through these commandments and understand that this is something that was seen, I believe, in the context of that scroll as God is reiterating the grace of his word needed for these people at their time and place where they're at. Chapter 20, verse 1. And God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord God. I am Yahweh thy God which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Before God gives them their commands, he basically says, I just want you to know, these commands I'm giving you, I I can give you because I'm the one that delivered you out of Egypt. Just like you can obey these because I've delivered you from that land that would be a hindrance to your obedience. Just like today, if you're in Christ, you have been delivered from the Egypt of sin. Jesus is the great exodus. He has brought you out. So that even in Christ now, we can say no to sin and yes to God. We can obey these in the spirit. Perfect? No. But is there a desire? Is there there ability? Yes. Verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. No other gods. No one can come before me. Then commandment, which is pretty, pretty telling. So here's the deal. Anything that we worship, anything that we think about is, is a God to us. Like money, money's not bad. It's loving money that's bad. How do you know, how do we know? <laughs> Act like I never struggle with this. How do we know that we love money? Do we think about it more than we think about anything else in life? Does it capture our soul? When we dream, what do we dream about if I only had more money? When's the last time we dreamed about, what if I just had more Jesus? What if he satisfied more? So he says, no other God. Now, this was 
this was common. They came from Egypt. Egypt had a mul- a multi- uh, multiple gods. The land they were going to be coming into would have pagans there worshiping multiple gods. And Yahweh says to them, there are no other gods. I, I am me and me alone. I do not share that. There is no other god. I am it. You can't share. There's no buffet line. So even as Christians, there's this thought that some would go, well, Christianity is great for you. Man, it's so great you found Jesus. But there are many ways, all right? You can go through this way. You can go through that way. You can go through that way. And I would go, wrong. There's one way to God through his son, Jesus. There's one God. So thou shalt have no other gods before me. Nothing else is, nothing else is to be worshipped except the one true God. Second command, verse 4. Thou shalt make... By the way, doesn't it kind of sound almost like this is, you know, uh, the thou and shalt? Doesn't that kind of make you feel like... Man, we're back in a Charlton Heston movie, right? I mean, like we're like the Ten Commandments. How providential you're reading it from a King James? Because <clears throat> I mean, obviously, that's the, this is what Jesus spoke was King James English, right? That's what he did. That was sarcasm on my part. Okay. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath. And that is in the water or under the earth. Thou shalt not bow thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Let me say a couple things. Commandment number two, no graven image. That was what you did. Every God you worshipped, you made a graven image to them. And you worshipped at that graven image. And that graven image would require certain really terrible things. Sometimes sacrificing your children, prostitution, all sorts of immorality. Sometimes involving drugs, uh, hallucinogens. But these gods, uh, these were not the real true God. And God said, hey, you come from Egypt and they, you, they worship things by idols. But I'm a little bit different. You're going to worship me in spirit and truth. That's what Jesus says, right? And, and, and also God says, I'm going to let you know what I'm like. You're going to think, I'm not like these other wooden gods that can be burned and made by man's hand. I'm different. I'm a spirit. I'm eternal. I'm Yahweh. I am the great I am. And you're going to know what I'm like because, because of what I'm about to give you as my character, the moral standards of what God is like. Like Jesus, when you look at Jesus' life, he perfectly obeyed these Ten Commandments. He shows what the character of what God is like. Like God is not a liar. He doesn't lie. God doesn't desire evil. He doesn't covet, right? Jesus honored his mother and father, all right? Are you with me? Do you kind of understand? So he's telling them, like, listen, this is a totally different thing. You're going to worship this God that's not like the other gods. All the other gods around them were at times capricious. It, sometimes they had, they, they did things in the, they, they were described as doing things almost evil and haphazard, and they were capricious. And if you didn't offer the right sacrifice, that God could be capricious and just strike you dead. There was no holiness to these pagan gods. But this is a totally different thing. So he says, don't make graven image. I'm actually bigger than that. I'm actually going to show you what I'm like as I reveal the moral commands of God. I'm going to show you what I'm like as I give you the ceremonial commands. As they went and sacrificed animal after animal after animal, it would point to God's character that someday that would happen to be fulfilled in his son Jesus, who would be the ultimate animal sacrifice, right? So everything was different. So thou shalt not make any graven image. Now, I want to clear something up for you. In verse 5, he says, for I am the Lord thy God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the 
third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Some would look at this and go, aha, those are generational curses. Do this. If you got this idea of a generational curse, right? I want you to write that on a piece of paper, right? Generational curses. And take that piece of paper, wad it up, and throw it aside. No such thing as a generational curse. You're not here today. You are not being cursed by God for the sins that your mother and father did. When you look at Deuteronomy 24, actually, it clearly tells us in Deuteronomy 24 that, that actually you judge for your own sins, that a man is not judged for his sons and a son's not judged for his father. When you look in the text, I want you to notice something. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that, what? Hate me. So what are we talking about here? Well, in their communal society, I mean, you didn't live in separate states or something like that from your family. Typically, you, where you were raised, you grew up and you took on, I mean, you took up on the family business. It was a very agricultural society that generation after generation, a father influences a son, right? The grandfather influences the son. And there would be this influence that could, that could particularly happen. If there is an influence of disobedience in the house, it has a strong possibility of influencing the next generation. And if the next generation, look at it, it says, upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. We're not talking about the fathers that hate three and four generations. It's talking about the children who take on the character traits of the, of the generations before and walk in this willful hatred and abandonment and this kind of... Um, disobedience to the, to the moral laws of God, that iniquity will be visited on them. It's not talking about a generational curse. But I will tell you this. If a person does not repent of their sin and trust Christ, yeah, the, 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 the holiness and wrath of God is coming on them. And in their society, if you, I mean, look years later, they disobeyed the law of Moses and they eventually were deported because of that. So that's what it's talking about. Not if your daddy sinned, then this is why you're having struggles today. Don't call up your dad and go like, Dad, how dare you, right? How dare you? You put this on me today. That's not true. That's a lot of kind of, kind of hocus pocus kind of stuff. Like you can reject that. That's not a truth in God's word. We interpret all of scripture together. That does not bear out anywhere. You are judged for your own sins, not the sins of the forefathers, not the sins of the past. And you're responsible for your own sins. That's something that's not, read out in our context of even our culture today. Now, so he, he says, hey, don't, don't, commandment number two, there's no other gods. Don't build any, don't bow down, don't make any other gods. I'm a jealous God. And by the way, if God's not jealous, he's not a real God. If a man's not jealous for his wife's affection, if a man's willing to share his wife's affection with every, with every other man, I would actually question, does that man actually even love his wife? I take comfort that God is a jealous God. His jealousy isn't wrong here. It's actually right. Sinful jealousy is when you're jealous about something you have no right to be jealous about. But in covenant relationship, this is a good thing. By the way, everybody always leaves off verse 6. Showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So if you obeyed the law of Moses, you obeyed the civil law, you, you, you lived in that Israelite society that the covenant that you'd made with the one true God then there is nothing but mercy and grace coming for you. Verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Interesting. In Zechariah chapter 5, when the vision's given, 
commandment number three is mentioned as one of those particular ones on that scroll, which tells you this is a particular one that they struggled with. Now, you might look at this and go, okay, I get it. Israel struggled with commandment number three. I don't struggle with that one, right? If I were to use a word, if I were to use, take a word, the name of God and put damn with it and put it together, my mom would slap me silly. So guess what, Nick? Good, right? There's no way I break commandment number three. You know, that's how most Christians look at commandment number three. We look at all these commands and we just go, number three, you know, okay, maybe I slip a OMG every now and then, you know, when something really exciting or scary happens, right? But no, that doesn't pertain to me. Like, wow, they really struggled with cursing and using God's name. Well, I would say this. This, the original intent for the original recipients, thou shalt not take the name of, thy, of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. I would, it, it's more fuller and richer than just that. So this is a unique one that Israel struggled with. And I would say it's still a unique one that we struggle with today, especially in our kind of Christian evangelical kind of cavalier, casual Christianity. Now, I would encourage everybody with this. Please do not use words that, throwaway words, to use as fill-in, you know, whenever something happens, right? I would encourage you not to put together the GD word, or I would encourage you when you're excited about something not to just use the word Christ as some kind of throwaway word because you've got nothing else to fill in at the moment. That, that would be one aspect of using the Lord's name in vain. Cavalier talking about him, using him as a filler word. Does everybody understand what, I'm, what I say when I say a filler word? Let's not do that. I mean, what is the beginning of the Lord's prayer? Hallowed be thy what? When we use Jesus' name, when you, we say Christ, when we say Jesus, when we say Yahweh, when we say God, there's a reverence and his name is not a throwaway word because his name means more than just the phonics. His name denotes character. So, we can't use those as throwaway words. Even when we're trying to use them in, in silly ways, you know. OMG, oh my gosh, actually, you know, it, it has something under the surface. Just because you're changing the word doesn't mean you're not changing some of the intent. So in vain, we don't want to just use filler words with God's name. That word in the Hebrew, in vain, has multiple definitions. And those definitions are pretty robust. has the idea of worthless inconsequential, even false. So I would say this, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Obviously, we would be denoting using cavalierly as a throwaway word, but that's not the only meaning of using his name in vain. Even when we look at Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus talks about this, it talks about swearing falsely in relation to this. So there's this idea of using it worthlessly, inconsequentially, throwaway word, but also false. That word for it in the Hebrew, false, meaning we could be using the Lord's name in vain when we speak false things about who God is, false things about his character. Because a name in the scriptures, and when God uses his name, his name denotes his character. So when we're using his name in vain, it, one of the other ways is we're speaking of his character in a false way. We're speaking of his character in a way that does not uphold who he is. We're speaking in a way about him that's not biblical. I, I can tell you there's been several times where I've had a person 
I've talked to a person about something that was in the scriptures about God's character concerning this. And the person's next response was, I know the Bible says that, but that's not my Jesus. What is that? It's taking the Lord's name in vain. You're taking and impressing what you think God's care, what we think God's character is. It's not actually true. Are you catching me like using his name in vain? But let me go a little bit further. We're not only capturing this idea of using it in a worthless, inconsequential manner, like a throwaway word or false about his character, but even the identification of his character. See, using his name in vain, when you look, in, when you look at that third commandment, Israel was a unique culture and society. Their society was founded on the law of God. They were founded on the one true God. That's the first thing about them. Everything that happened from their moral law, the Ten Commandments, to the civil law, how they structured the civil society, their sacrificial system, how that, it was all structuring and pointing to the one true God. And God got very upset with them when they started worshiping multiple gods, started showing the other pagan nations by the way they acted, they would disarm the character of what God was meant to be shown to all the pagan nations, right? So what happens is this. Using his name in vain is also possible when we espouse ourselves to a relationship with Jesus and to the character of who God is, but disarm him by our lifestyle. Are you tracking with me on that? So if it's this thing of, I'm a Christian, my identity's in Christ and the finished work of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and it does not matter if it, in obe- but, but because I've got salvation, obedience doesn't matter His word doesn't matter. His character doesn't matter. Jesus loves me unconditionally to a point that I can do whatever I want. We're good. And I would go, no, actually, you're breaking the third. We, I say you. (laughs) Aren't we all together on this one? We are breaking that commandment. But even more subtly, I don't, I mean, we're typically kind of a more robust, you know, doctrinally kind of conservative church. So my fear wouldn't be verbally saying that. It would be more with our own personal lifestyles, right? It would be more that thing of that, that only you and the secret diary of our lives know about. Do we use the Lord's name in vain? Do we publicly proclaim him as Lord and King? Like, yes, Jesus is my Savior. Do we promote that and say that to people? But then in the secret diary of our lives, his character isn't being put on display you know, is like, for instance, is the father in the home an example of a shepherd Jesus? Do you, you understand? Do the children practice idea of honor and obedience and the privacy of what's on your cell phone and how you're interacting with the world? I mean, you know, is that using the Lord's name in vain? Are you claiming his character? Are we claiming his character publicly, but privately it's really an in vain thing? Do you understand what I'm saying when I say this, right? Commandment number three. It's still relevant for today. Look at the next commandment. By the way, commandment three was a unique one for them that they would struggle with. Now look at the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. You don't see this Sabbath reiterated in the New Testament, but I would say I think it still holds. I think we see it as a creation principle. I would tell you this for this commandment, keep the, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you should, you should do labor and do all your work. Verse 10, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it you shall not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor my maidservant, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, 
or the stranger that is within your gates. And in six days, the Lord God made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. And he rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he hallowed it. Now for them, in their context, that was a Saturday, right? Um, that, I, I would say this. I, I don't believe Christians are under that obligation to do this on Saturday. But I do think this is a creation principle that Christians should work hard for six days. And there ought to be at least one day where they can gather and rest and refuel. And when I say rest, I'm not talking about playing the you know, candy crush on your phone all day. I'm talking about rest physically, but also rest in the Lord and rest with his people. The early Christians, they, I mean, a lot of them were Jews. They still worshiped on Saturday, and then they came together on the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday. Through time as Gentiles came in, they started to use that first day of the week as a time to gather. I still believe it's very important, and this season of COVID taught me even more essential. God's people have to actually gather weekly for each other. And as much as possible, we gather weekly, we worship, we do life together, but also this is a time to rest in the Lord. This is a time for, uh, you know, to put away the normal things of life and actually have time with Him. This is why I'm kind of excited in a couple weeks on August the 15th, we're going to start, and we're going to do it every other week for until... Uh, until October, we're going to start having family meal together, right? And w- one of the reasons I want to do that is because it lets us actually kind of take a little bit more Sabbath with each other. We're actually going to rest and talk about the Lord. We're going to eat together. We're not going to be going to restaurants and causing people to work on Sundays. I mean, like, let's not sound that's wrong for you to do, right? But I'm saying, like, we're going to try to rest with each other. I will tell you this, though. Have you ever noticed, though, businesses that do decide to give their employees one day of rest, how much more productive those businesses actually are. It's a, it's a rest principle. So we see that for them. It's no less for us. Even for them, this is one of the things about Israel that kind of got them off centered. If they didn't take a day of rest, they wouldn't take a day of worship. They wouldn't take a day of recall. And like, like a dog, they would forget and not remember all that God so... The commandment says this, even that flying scroll contains all the commandments. It would tell them like, hey, you guys got to make sure and rest, rest in the Lord, rest with each other, observe the Lord together. Keep looking. Verse 12, honor your mother and father. That was on that scroll, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your mother and father. One side of the scroll was your relationship with the Lord. The other side would have been relationship with others. Hey, you want, do we want to, if you want to know how is your relationship with God doing, look at how your relationship with others is going, right? They're very connected, right? A love for God means a love for creation. Love for the creator, a love for the creation. It, it actually lets you know the, the, the right way to actually live in God's commandments, these last six well, is if we're worshiping well the first four. Honor your mother and father, that your days may be long upon the land. This is an important one. Honor, so here's a question. Are you honoring your mother and father today? If you're under their authority still, are you obeying them? Even in, the, even in your secret soul, I mean, even like the secret diary of your life, when you're given an instruction, do you secretly roll your eyes, roll the eyes of your soul? Y'all know what I mean when it, the eyes are rolled, right? Have you ever done that when someone said something, you rolled your eyes? Y- y'all know anything about that, right? Look at the next commandment. Thou shalt not kill you know what's interesting? Thou shalt not kill. It's this idea of taking an innocent life. Taking an innocent life. 
We don't really obey that command much anymore, do we? We, we think it's okay to take an innocent life. Even as a Christian, we, we have to actually let this still forms and fills out our life. Even for Israel, they, they worship one false god that required that you would kill your innocent child in sacrifice to them. But what happens is this, if they would just obey this moral command. Even for our culture, even for our, our this is kind of where we sit. I was talking to a Christian the other day. This person uh, claims, I mean, this person is an espoused, solid Christian. And we were talking about even this subject matter of abortion. And that Christian had told me and said, I believe that it's a woman's right, right? And they had all these lines of thinking that were going according to it. And I thought to myself, this person is basing what they believe on man's thoughts, but not God's thoughts. God has clearly spoken. All life is valuable. All life is valuable. And by the way, just so you know, if you start thinking one life is not valuable, then you can start making all life not valuable. And before you know it, when you don't have enough contribution to a culture and society, then you don't have a place in that society. By the way, just a side note, thou shalt not kill. I mean, th- these moral commands of God that God was wanting to reiterate in, Ezekiel, in the Ezekiel's vision, it has huge implications. So, for instance, when if the Lord doesn't come back, all of us will get older. Do y'all know that? Do you realize that? That you're, that, that you're getting older every day? Do y'all know that? Can y'all just say amen if you know that? Do y'all know that? Okay. Just making sure everybody knows that, all right? And the older you get, there comes this challenge where you start to go, I don't have value because I can't produce anymore. Y'all, y'all catch me? You start to think this thought. And then this thought is like, the Lord might as well take me because I can't do all the things I used to do when my body was strong physically. You know what you've bought into? Thou shalt not kill. You're thinking you have no value. If you're alive and God's giving you breath, you still have value. Value is not based on your productivity. Value is based on you're in God's image, which means this. Your value may be, if your body is weak, you may be the biggest prayer warrior and your prayers may be what's actually turning things around. But even past that, If you get to a point where your body is now failing and then your family and friends have to step in and sacrifice themselves to minister to you, praise God. Because the last I looked, God valued sacrifice. He didn't value selfishness. What happens when somebody gets in at a certain age in life where the body's wearing, it's like, I don't want to be a burden to anybody. Let me ask you a question. Have you read that anywhere in the scripture where God says, thou shalt not be a burden to anybody? You see the basis for thou shalt not kill, right? Like, all life is valuable. All life is precious, right? We don't take innocent life. At every stage until God takes away that breath, you have value, you have purpose, no matter what. This is on that, I'm, I'm going through this because this was obviously on that scroll and essential for their culture. Even this, look at the next one. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Everything, I mean, even a stable society has to be, and by the way, when God gave the civil laws, I mean, like it, it thou shalt not commit adultery does not mean like, oh, well, I'm not married, so if I have sex outside of marriage, that law doesn't apply to me. No, actually, this is a moral law that encompasses the whole spectrum of sexuality. Thou shalt not commit adultery is also saying sex is only between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage, and it goes nowhere outside of that. 
Now that's a huge one. That's a huge one. And, and if you don't believe this solid, this solid commandment, it leads you into all sorts of things like this. Well, we'll just live together because it's economically convenient and we just got to try things out. And boy, that just really makes good sense, right? But what does God's word say? Or this thought of this. We fell in love. And we fell in love in the first five years. We just loved each other. We just, oh, it felt so good. And it's 20 years later. We fell out of love. And it's just not, I met someone at work. And they just treat me and say, ah, you know, it must be God's will for me to be with them. Thou shalt not commit what? Not God's will. His word said something different. All of life underpins itself with this moral law. Verse 15, thou shalt not steal. Now, remember the scroll. Uniquely, it talked about commandment 3 um, and 8 here, right? Thou shalt not steal. You know, what was happening in Israel is this. They would steal from each other. Uh, a, a, vulnerable, uh, a vulnerable woman, vulnerable widow could have her land taken away. There was a lot of unjust weights and measurements and business practices. They were being dubious. They were lying. They were stealing, cheating each other in all sorts of ways. And interesting, in the scroll, it was like, hey, this is one that Israel... Judge them, God judged them in the past. They kept doing this stealing kind of thing, and, and that broke their nation down. By the way, that can break any nation down. Where there is theft and stealing. You know what's great um, that, that I really love about our country is the belief that, that a man has personal property. It's his own personal property. But just so you know this, any political system that says, I can take what, what you've been given and can steal from you, it it, it destroys a whole entire nation, right? Thou shalt not steal. Look at verse 16. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shouldn't lie. A culture and society breaks down when there is lying. And by the way, it's even lying if we hold back a little bit of truth. Even if we bend it. I love verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his maidservant, nor his manservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. You know what's interesting? The last commandment is coveting. What's interesting about coveting? I hear people all the time go, you know what? When it came to Jesus, he came on the scene and he took, remember when Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Y'all remember that? And I've heard people go like, hi, before then, that obeying God was just don't commit adultery, but you could think about it. It wasn't a sin yet. Then Jesus comes on the scene and gives it a bigger meaning and like, oh, you can even sin by the thoughts you think. That's not true. That was already there. When Jesus said, if you've lusted after a woman to think about her in your heart already, you've already committed adultery. He's pairing together that commandment nine, but also commandment 10. Commandment 10 is coveting. Coveting is all about desire, all about lust. So, so actually, here's the deal. If you commit commandment, if you break commandment 10, guess what you're going to do with the rest of the commandments? Break them. Before you ever commit adultery, what have you already done? Thought about it in your heart. Before you've ever stolen, you've already coveted that in your heart. Before you ever disobey and not honor your mother and father, you've already done that in your heart. Before you go and worship any other God, you've actually already done that in your heart. Y'all get this, right? We're like, sin doesn't start with the outward, it starts with the inward. Why do I walk you through that? Go back over to Zechariah chapter 5 as we end this. I walked you through that because 
when you look at this text today, God clearly comes into the text and he says, this law that I've given you, from the moral law to the civil law to the ceremonial, he names out two of the Ten Commandments. He warns them. Look in verse 4. I will bring it forth, says the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief and into the house of him that swears falsely by my name. That's, that's one commandment. And it shall remain in the midst of the house. It shall consume it with timber thereof and stones thereof. He says, basically, you went into captivity because of all this. You're going to tear your house down, your life down, your society, your culture, if you do what you did in the past. You've got a short attention span. You've got a short memory. You're rebuilding this, tem- this, you're rebuilding this temple. Do not forget to rebuild your life on the word of God. So as we kind of end off this message, my encouragement to us as a body is, this is a grace for them, but it's a grace for us. What a reminder that the word of God is the most precious thing. It's more precious than every Netflix binge. It's more, it's more precious than any other thing in our life. And every time we go back to the Word of God, it actually points us to the Word of God, the Word made flesh and that dwelt among us. They were building a temple that was pointing towards some future temple when the Word Jesus was made flesh and dwelt among us. Would you stand to your feet? And we're going to do this. We have a time of worshiping the Lord. And then we're going to open it up for a time of edifying the body. And then we're going to dismiss out into the foyer to have a time of baptism. And then we'll make some announcements. But let's do this. We're going to have a time of singing to the Lord, a time for you to edify, a time to take communion, then a time for baptism. Would you bow with me and ask for God's blessing over this time? Would you let our time of taking communion today uniquely, let us capture a a strong reminding in our soul of how important God's word is to our lives? I'm so thankful. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for its guidance. I'm thankful that it fights against all these things I try to make up about life. I try to find my joy and pleasure in so many places that you've said that's not the place to find it. Lord, let us enjoy you as we sing and as we hear God's people remind us of the word. And Lord, Bless our time of taking communion together. The Word made flesh. Let us remember the life, death, burial, resurrection of of Jesus. Let us remember the gospel according to the Scriptures. And bless our time as we observe what the Scriptures have told us to do when someone has come to faith in Christ. They take a step of obedience and follow you in believers' baptism. Let us do this for a moment. Let us repent, confess sin. Let us fall back into your arms, back into the good news. And God's people said, Amen.